Oh man. So like this book I've been reading, the uh-huh. the Fall of the House of Labor by David Montgomery. Um it just got to it's like talking about basically the craft union era, uh from like the end of the Civil War up until like the era after right after World War One, the beginning of the interwar era. And he like I just got to the part where he's talking about like how labor responded to World War One. And it, of course, because it's this era, there's a lot of talk about Sam Gompers. And it was just really interesting because it's like I knew that Gompers was not anti-war, but I hadn't really seen much about like his specific response. And he was literally just like, well, look, see, look, like uh, the patriotism whipped everybody up into a fury and nobody can beat that. So opposing the war would be stupid and pointless and it would destroy labor. So we should support <laughs> the war. It'll be great. And I just want to make like a meme that it's just like, it's like one side is gompers and one side is, is Debs. And just like inside of you are two wolves. One of them is terrible. <laughs> Kill that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and just go with the cool one that actually advocates for international solidarity. <laughs> Well, it's just such a stupid position, too. It's like, oh, the war is popular, so we should support it. And it's like, well, if the if if something is popular, but it's also wrong, like maybe you should take a stand against it, especially if you're a leader in an organization that maybe has influence over the opinions of its members, or at least they might be willing to listen to you explain your position. Like, I also don't buy it. Like, it just kind of seems like he wanted war for whatever reason. And he was like, I have come up with a bullshit reason to tell everyone. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, almost certainly. Tailism is generally justified with like the, oh, it'll be good for industry, which is good for workers. And it's just that class collaborationist ideology kind of repackaged in a warmongering attitude. Yeah, well, and it's also like really weird to be like, we should do international military war in exchange for labor peace. And it's like, no, I think you should do it exactly the other way around. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) he was like, his justifications were all like, well, like, look, all the like, all these like socialists in Europe tried to convince people not to support the war and that didn't work. Therefore, we shouldn't try either. <laughs> I'm just like, I don't believe that you wanted to try, Mr. Gompers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just every single like time he enters the narrative, because he's not in it that much. Like mostly the book is trying to follow like the actual like workers themselves and like the 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 small unions that would crop up during this period. And the like a lot of the weird contradictions that existed uh when you had like you know, the skilled crafts being like, we need to protect our craft, but we don't give a shit about these other workers because they don't right. do our stuff. So we're focusing on just our situation and seeing like the dual trends emerging from that of like, you have the internationalists and the radicals in like the IWW and even some of the like, like you know, other like more left unions. And then so many of these groups that are just like, but what if all we fought for was a slightly higher wage? Yeah, <laughs> and, and just it. for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because well, the whole thing was just like, look, we're here to protect skilled labor. We can't be protecting all these like unskilled 
immigrant laborers. They're here to take our jobs. I'm like, oh, cool. Good to know that this idiotic line of argument is like 150 years old. Yeah, well, because like, where has that gotten us to like two and three and four and 100 tiered labor systems and all kinds of different industries where it's like, possible for five workers on one specific team to be unionized but then they don't have the backing of any of the other workers in the building any of the other workers who are on their teams and it's like without that level of solidarity and support or like maybe collectively all being in the same union if you work for the same employer at least they just like slowly lose their ability to even fight for themselves you know yeah, I do, I, I do know. Yeah, we study this all the time, John. Yeah, we, <laughs> we are frequently talking about these kinds of things on this show, which is called Work Stoppage. podcast my name is john i'm dan and i am lena and we are entirely listener supported so thank you so much for your contributions on patreon if you're not in the discord already get in there it's totally free if you're a patron and you don't have stickers yet just message us on patreon and we will get you some stickers and if you want to help the show you can leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts or you can leave sam gompers a zero star review (laughs) on apple podcasts (laughs) (laughs) that's right But first, we want to follow up with talking about the CUPE workers in Ontario that the Ford administration was trying to start some shit with. Uh, And unfortunately, negotiations had not been encouraging over the last week after reaching a deal to end their strike in exchange for repeal of the draconian anti-strike law, Bill 28. negotiations, Negotiations have since returned to a stalemate. Yeah. So... Not a huge amount of updates, unfortunately, because of the timing of when we record. Uh, there's likely to be developments while we're doing this recording. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, so that's the thing. Like, we talked about this big, you know, general strike threat on last week's episode, but Ontario's parliament was not in session last episode, well, last week. So even though there was the agreement from the state, the provincial government mm-hmm. to repeal bill 28, which is the law that attempted to make strikes by school support staff illegal, uh, as well as, you know, imposing a, a horrific contract on the workers. And, and that is set to be repealed uh, today, the day we're recording, uh, November 14th. But, while these nego- like the the workers held up their part of the bargain and returned to the bargaining table the government which promised they're like okay look we'll bargain in good faith and so far <laughs> what that has meant is that rather than moving their offer of like a 2% raise for higher paid workers and a 2.5% raise for lower paid workers to something you know a little closer mm-hmm. to the unions proposed raise of 10%, uh, they have raised their offer by a whopping 0.5%. That's disgusting. They are now offering these, the lowest paid school support staff workers, a 3% raise. And I will remind our listeners that these are workers. So this is like, uh, library workers, uh, custodians, uh, professionals, all, all the sorts of workers who 
who are in a school and make the school run that aren't directly teachers. And they're paid an average of $39,000 a year. So again, this is a 10% raise that the union is suggesting, which would only bring them up to $43,000 a year. But that's that's just too much, apparently, for the Ontario government. Right. I think it's really important to also point out that inflation in Canada is almost at 7% for the mm-hmm. year already. And so if anything, this is a 4% cut that they're proposing to these workers' wages. And uh, I mean, if they were really bargaining in good faith, they'd be like, okay, so it's expensive. And you know, they have their whatever bullshit excuse. And like, okay, so we're going to stick to inflation. Like even that, would be like more good faith than what this is, which is clearly just a, a ploy to be like, no, trust me, we made the number go up. So that means that we're in good faith. Yeah, right. I mean, it's really like they said, okay, what if instead of being a day late and a dollar short, we were a full fucking week late and 94 cents short how would how would that suit you uh public workers and it's really really embarrassing this offer because like ontario and specifically toronto has like the highest cost of living in all of canada followed Mm -hmm. fairly closely by vancouver i believe and like ontario is by far the most populated province in the country so this is really comparable to people who live in and around for example, New York City being paid something like, yeah, or San Francisco or whatever, a Silicon Valley being paid $39,000 a year. Imagine trying to make it on that. You couldn't even afford a one bedroom in a closet. Yeah. And so this is very much I like I, while the general strike threat was, you know, pushed to the side last week, uh, when the government agreed to repeal the bill. This is by no means over. Uh, there was one small uh, uh, development. We did mention last week that the bus drivers in Ontario, the the 2,200 members of ATU Local 1587, went on strike at the same time because they'd already been in contract negotiations, and since this was all going on, they're like, this is a great way to, well, I guess, perfect time to launch our their strike. And mm-hmm. they reached a tentative agreement late last week to restart bus service in Toronto. And I didn't, I wasn't able to find the specific details, but according to the union, the new contract uh, does address the key issues that they were going after, which were problems of safety and the problem of the bus system company using outside non-union contracting as a way to sort of get around their, their existing contract with these ATU workers. So that's good. But on the QP front, uh, we're still, we're still going to be following this because I mean, there's just as much a chance that, like, the minute this bill is repealed today, if if the the Ontario government doesn't come up with a better offer than this joke of 3% of a raise, that QB might just go right back out on strike again, which, frankly, is would be the right move. So uh, I think we're going to be following this some more in the, in the coming weeks. Almost certainly. And in another story that we have been following, we've been talking about the Medieval Times workers and how in California, and specifically Buena Park, uh, the Buena Park Castle there, uh, the workers had filed for a union election. Well, those results came in, and the workers have won their election 27-18, to 18, joining the American Guild of Variety Artists uh, back on the 10th. And so we're really excited for them. Uh, I mean, Medieval Times management has been trying everything to stop these union drives at these castles since the first one in New Jersey was held. Uh, The first vote, successful vote, was held in New Jersey earlier this year. 
Uh, and, you know, despite the stupid fucking trademark infringement lawsuit against the union uh, and them hiring union-busting consultants, their lies, I mean, it's uh, not really a, a surprise that these workers were able to really overcome it. I mean, there was it seems like there's quite a bit of consciousness uh, going on in this union. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's really impressive because, like, I I think the the trademark infringement lawsuit in particular was such a bogus and visibly ridiculous yeah. tactic by the company that, like, I saw that crossover not just into like more popular labor news, but that became like a mainstream news story, like a page two or three kind of deal thing for a while. I had people asking me about it, and it's like. It's, it's absolutely bizarre to try and attack these workers because they're going out there and they're not just underpaid. They're also like ri- literally risking life and limb, working with trained animals, being athletes on stage, being entertainers. You know, they're doing the jobs that come with a lot of physical risk. They're like dancing and, and doing athletic shows and, and like handling jumping off horses and stuff, jumping off horses and handling birds. And she like, can you imagine being a falconer? Like how it, insanely nerve rattling that must be so uh it's insane because they'll start these people at minimum wage so they're starting them at the same wage you get like washing dishes at a Chili's no disrespect to anybody who washes dishes at Chili's but there are no horses involved there's no getting (laughs) kicked in the ribs by a horse at Chili's yeah (laughs) yeah so it's really good to see these workers who do have an incredibly physically demanding job Uh, because again I think there's some people like folks who wouldn't be aware of their working conditions might think of it's like, Oh, well, medieval times that's probably like they do like a couple of shows on the weekend. And Mm -hmm. then they probably have most of the rest of the week off. It's like, no, these folks are working like sometimes a dozen shows a week. So like, this is, this is a consistent, really high, like physical demand for some of these workers. So really great to see these folks win their election. Uh, and, and yeah, so now the, the medieval times unit of the American Guild of Variety Artists is officially bi-coastal. Uh, they've got uh, unionized castles, two of the, I believe, ten in the United States. Uh, now uh, one just outside New York, and this one, which I believe Buena Park is just outside L.A., um, and so in a statement following their win, the union said, quote, by bringing the performers and stable hands at medieval times, Buena Park, California to the table, we'll collaboratively negotiate a fair co- a collective bargaining agreement, which ensures that wages are commensurate with skills, improves safety protocols and enforces them and brings about a respectful working environment, end quote. So congratulations once again to these folks. And uh, honestly, considering how just really mean (laughs) a lot of the way that the management and ownership of medieval times has responded to this. Just really all the more reason to hope that now that we've got, you know, victorious union groups at castles on either side of the country, that helps inspire the workers at the remaining castles to join as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, 20% is, uh, you know, a pretty good start for, you know, the first year of their organizing, at least, you know, publicly. I mean, maybe they've been organizing from last year or the year before that, but still, I, I think that that's a really good start to their... And especially because this one I was partially in response to the other one, which to me means yeah. that it was actually a pretty new drive. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So that that just rocks. Yeah. Uh, things that don't rock. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as long as we're talking about jobs where you are sincerely risking injury just by performing the work, let's talk about a job that children absolutely should not be doing. 
but were found to have been doing uh, at Packer Sanitation Services. And so they've been cited by the Labor Department this week for engaging in child labor, uh, in having children function as cleaning company employees at meatpacking cl- meat plants. This was reported by Lauren K. Gurley in the Washington Post. Investigators say that Packer Sanitation Services employed over 30 kids, some as young as 13, to clean the kill floors, meatpacking plant, and other parts of slaughterhouses in Nebraska and Minnesota. Minnesota. These kids were employed using dangerous chemicals to clean meat cutting machines at facilities of JBS, the world's largest meat producer, and several of the kids got chemical burns and other injuries, according to the report. JBS, for their part, put out a statement saying they are taking the allegations, quote, seriously, but of course, this is the same monopoly who forced its meat packing workers to work through the pandemic, leading to nearly 300 deaths during 2020. And if you are a little bit uh, less strict in how you count COVID deaths, probably far, far more than that. Yeah. So this was actually, this was probably the uh, labor story from this past week that was the most sent to me mm-hmm. uh, by people I know. I got pinged on this one a, a lot because this is one of those stories that was bad enough that it actually made it into a lot of mainstream press. Like again, you have this reporting coming out of the Washington Post because like it's one thing when you have child welfare, like child labor violations by Chipotle because mm-hmm. they're making 14 year olds work longer on a school night than they're supposed to, which is bad. And they should yes. be punished for that. And mm-hmm. those kids shouldn't have to do that. But it, I feel like it strikes a bigger chord when it's something like this or like the story we talked about, uh, like I think a couple months ago now at this point of the child labor being used at a Hyundai factory in Mm -hmm. Alabama where you have kids around dangerous machinery. And in this case, not only dangerous machinery, but also dangerous chemicals. Like this is an environment that is obvious to anyone that children should not be working in. Like this is a dangerous environment for well-trained adults who know exactly what they're doing. Like much less a 13-year-old who's coming to work at a place like this almost guaranteed because their family needs the money in order to pay their bills. So, because, like, one of the things that I think is also really important to point out about this is that this is not just they employed children, which is bad. Mm -hmm. It's that they, once again, like so many of these stories, specifically targeted children from Hispanic families because there was clearly the idea that, you know, these folks are going to be the most desperate, they're going to be the least likely to complain, it'll make us easier easier for us to get away with these labor law violations. And, And Packer Sanitation, the company that employed these children, is not some tiny, like, random just pop-up contracting firm that appeared from nowhere. They have contracts with 700 plants across the country, and they have 17,000 employees. So, like, this is a big firm. And the idea that, like, that they've been caught for this, again, like, to me, says that they've been doing this for a very long time across the country because the the feds never catch the company doing this the first time. It's only after right. it's been going on for a long time that they ever do anything about it. Well, it's, it's when they really start to slip. And this is kind of yeah. a, 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 as far as we know, situation like these 30 kids are the 30 kids that they got caught right. using. Right. And judging from their response to the Labor Department's investigation within this facility, which was threatening kids to try and keep them from cooperating with the Labor Department, manipulating records to hide the use of illegal child labor, and trying to keep investigators from taking photos of work areas, which is 
I don't even know how you think you're going to get away with that one. And directly pulling kids out of interviews with investigators, I have to imagine that they are doing this because if there's a precedent that getting caught for this is a problem for them, they realize that they're suddenly going to get caught at many more of their facilities. I find it sincerely difficult to believe that the number of underage children they're employing is only in the double digits. Yeah, Yeah, I I think that also just the thing that really is wild to me is that this is i mean being on a kill floor there's probably tons of really sharp implements i remember Mm -hmm. my first Mm -hmm. job at 14 where i worked at a sandwich shop i wasn't even allowed to wipe off the meat slicing machine right yeah and and these kids are being asked to clean not only just they're being given really caustic chemicals which there are in in the story there's many reports of these kids getting chemical burns and other injuries from the cleaning work that they're doing and they're not just using it on the floors but they're being asked to train to to clean all this industrial like slaughterhouse equipment which like that's again that equipment is a dangerous job for the people who are trained to use it right. and who are adults much less children who have no idea what this stuff is i mean literally the, it's a slaughterhouse so the the chemicals are designed specifically to burn through flesh and blood and mm-hmm. bone and such so like it's literally like what's if it's going to do damage to a cow imagine the fucking damage it will do to you yeah absolutely and I mean, so anyone who's been a dishwasher has probably gotten chemical burns to yeah. some extent and i mean this sure. is just that on another level yeah in yeah. another order of magnitude yeah so we, there is a statement from uh, Michael Lazari, a Labor Department official who was involved in this investigation, who said, taking advantage of children, exposing them to workplace dangers, and interfering with a federal investigation demonstrates Packer Sanitation Services Incorporated's flagrant disregard for the law and for the well-being of young workers. And so last Thursday on the 10th, a judge issued a preliminary injunction against the company, which... <laughs> orders them to immediately cease the use of oppressive child labor and to cooperate with investigators. And that's just one of those things. I'm like, again, you are using that. Why is the court having to issue a statement? That's like, Hey, please stop breaking every child labor. Like once the court is involved at this point, like you should be forcing them to stop this stuff. Like how is it that people aren't going to jail? by arresting their board? Yeah, the next yeah. time I'm stealing fruit from a supermarket and they catch me and the police are hauling me out, I'm going to start asking, why didn't you file a court injunction with a judge that tells me to follow the law first? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's how these come. That's the thing. And, and, like, I know that sounds goofy, but that's how this system is set up for mm-hmm. companies. It's always just they get to break every law in the book, and then when they get caught, then the government comes and just wags their finger at them like, hey, you better stop. You're creating a lot of bad press, guys. Yeah. Go back to breaking the <laughs> law more quietly please it would be a big <laughs> courtesy to us like yeah and and i think pathetic. finally like even though this company is a you know for one of these labor providing contractors actually relatively large even if they were to shut down this company which they're clearly not going to do although they should like it, it, the thing that's so frustrating i think about these stories is that like what's going to happen to the the people that are responsible for this nothing mm-hmm. like they might face a fine some sort of again another injunction like this mm-hmm. like they're 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 not gonna face you know responsibility for putting these kids into incredibly dangerous situations that resulted in them getting various injuries and you know just not being able to have like a normal childhood because they're having to work 
this ridiculous job for a child to be doing. And anytime you catch a small contractor, like the one in, in Alabama at the Hyundai factory, they can just, you know, close up shop, liquidate the company and restart it the next day with a new name because they, because nothing is being done about the incentive structures that make this stuff happen. Like there's no addition. Nobody's talking about adding teeth to child labor laws. It's always just, oh, wow, isn't that horrific? Anyway, moving on. You will add, like, the, all, all we have is like, fines, and they're not even high yeah. enough. They don't even make up the difference in the money that they save by exploiting children. It's like, it, it, we're not even doing the right thing, and the thing we're doing, we're half-assing anyway. Yeah, like... like this is one of those things where it's just like, oh, you illegally employed child labor? It should, it should just be, oh, your company now belongs to the state. <laughs> like... Yeah, yeah as, and as well and as all of your assets. Every, and you're paying for every need that this child has for the next fucking 14 years or something yeah. like that. Yeah, you're you paying know? for their college, and then when they graduate college, they get an executive position in the company. <laughs> yeah, like, so, I like, look, I, like, because I don't want, we're glad these people got caught. I'm glad that the labor department has, you know, some investigators who seem to be, you know, trying to help these kids. Sure. But, this is, it's so important with every one of these stories that we look at the systemic parts of this because there's a reason we keep reporting on these stories because they're not going to stop happening until we actually do something that to actually make it so that they can't happen. And I don't really see under America's version of capitalism any way that's going to happen in any sort of reformist measure. So, look, yeah. all we're asking well, for is a system that is so good that we don't have to do the show anymore. Is that <laughs> too yeah. much to ask? <laughs> that would be really nice. That would be really nice. But, right. I mean, as we know, things do not uh, cease and struggle does not stop. Uh, in fact, in uh, Kentucky, we have seen at Amazon another one of the, what they call air hubs uh, that has said that they are organizing a union. So, I mean, as the union busting continues from Amazon, so does the workers struggle. That's right. We love to see this. So we've talked a little bit about the air hub in California, in inland, the Inland Empire area of, of mm-hmm. Southern California. But this is another air hub. This is their big air hub in the east out in basically the suburbs of Cincinnati. Uh, this this is a facility called in Amazon's parlance KCVG, uh, which is going to be a really uh, difficult one for the like phonetic alphabet because they all sound very similar. But um, <laughs> so this like this is basically these workers are like just across the border from Ohio and Kentucky, and. This is one of their like biggest, most vital logistics centers. Uh, they, it, it, but their workers, of course, are treated just as badly as any other Amazon mm-hmm. workers. Like this air hub, I was reading about this. Like this is mostly from a uh, report out of Perfect, More Perfect Union. It handles something like thirty-five percent of all of Amazon's air freight, and yet these workers are only making eighteen dollars an hour, and they don't top out at much more than that, and only after a couple of years. So, 
These workers announced their organizing drive last Thursday, the 10th, uh, at the same time that they began canvassing for a petition to demand a starting wage of $30 an hour, uh, of course, in, in once again in reference to the ALU, uh, and also demanding more paid time off for the workers. Uh, right now, the organizing drive is currently independent, but the organizers did tell More Perfect Union that once the drive gets going off the floor, they do plan to talk to the major unions in the area uh, to try and find a partnership. So uh, they said that they kicked this drive off earlier this year when Amazon came through and gave all the workers a raise, feeling pressure from the successful or unionizing of the mm -hmm. JFK warehouse. But the reason that this raise helped prompt organizing, because again, you would think, oh, well, that would be the other, it'd be the other way around. That would suppress organizing. The the reason that it prompted organizing at this facility is that the raise that Amazon gave workers was. 50 cents an hour. <laughs> and that was it. Somehow more yeah. insulting than not getting a raise. It's crazy how like an insulting raise can really cut yeah. so deep, you know? I also, I mean, with them having wage caps on, on mm -hmm. workers, yes. I imagine that there were people that didn't even get this 50 cent raise. Oh, yeah. 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 And and the raise came at the same time as always. Amazon loves the bait and switch. They come out and say, "Hey, we're going to give you everyone gets a raise," and it's all from the, the 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 just the generosity of our our management. And yet at the same time, they made the announcement that this year during the peak season for holiday sales, they will no longer be giving workers uh, oh, like special holiday pay. Basically, in the past, workers had received a $2 an hour premium for doing work during the massive holiday rush that happens at the end of every calendar year. But that's now been taken away to try and boost Amazon's profit margins. I think that that specifically highlights the idea that it, you do actually make workers happier when you pay them more for more work. Uh, <laughs> and then when... <laughs> I know, crazy idea. Wild but concept. Yeah, and, and then they're like, well, you know, geez, it's been so expensive to employ people, and Mr. Bezos would like to add another billion to his, you know, repertoire, trying to reach up there to the trillion, uh, you know, era, oh, or no, area, but... but didn't you hear he's going to give it all away? <laughs> oh, to who? Mr. Beast? This yeah. is me hold this is me with the fucking picture okay get in with the coffin behind me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean so organizer Griffin Ritzy uh, apologize if I pronounce that wrong who is a cargo tractor driver at the Air Hub told More Perfect Union quote when they announced all those raises company wide it just really fell flat and then they had the gall to call it a cost of living adjustment raise end quote. Again that's a 50 cent raise during a year with 8% inflation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's telling wild. these workers it's a cola. Like, it, yeah, I mean, it, it's really nuts how, like, companies, like, can't stop themselves from using PR speak all the time, even yeah. when we're in an era where, like, everybody's been so inundated with it for so long that it just feels like salt in the wound. And mm -hmm. anybody who's, like, even remotely attached to the attitudes of the working class would know that. But instead, you have these, like, totally distant, like, uh, wh what would you call it? Like, Jupiterian kind of uh, management figures who are just like, oh, tell them it's cost of living. That'll really smooth things <laughs> over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, when the workers announced their their union drive, they they described how they came together, saying, 
quote, a growing group of workers began talking about how the only way to win any lasting change at Amazon would be by forming a union to mm-hmm. fight for what we want. We met almost daily after work to discuss the key demands, make decisions democratically, decide the next steps in the campaign, and formalize our independent group of coworkers, end quote. And so they also have been specifically in like their, la- their literature and the language they're using. These workers are specifically going after some of the, the points that Amazon has tried to use to convince workers to vote against the union at other spots. They've sp- like came out in front of like the question of dues because that's been a really common argument by Amazon saying that the dues like that any that these workers would come up with were their union to be successful will always be agreed upon democratically. And they, they added in, I think, a, a point that we would think is obvious, but unfortunately I think is very important to include, where they said that the, that the dues that they would be negotiating, quote, will always be much lower than the raise we win in a contract, end quote. Which again, like for us, for labor nerds, we're like, well, yeah, of course, it's like a big part of why you want a union. But I mean, we've seen so many stories that, like, again, because our education system specifically tries not to tell people what unions are, like, there's a lot of people who just, there's so much anti-union propaganda, they don't really know what to expect. So I actually think it was smart of them to put that in there, even if it seems obvious. Absolutely. I mean, I think that it's also really important to point out here that this facility itself is so incredibly important. We talk about Mm -hmm. these these kind of air hub things. Well, what that actually means in this case is that 35% of Amazon's freight moves through this facility. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. that is a huge portion, which means that the leverage that the workers have is immense. If they were to mm-hmm. withhold their labor, they would be cutting down Amazon's ability to move shit around by a third. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the the workers at the at the air hub are, are just at the very earliest stages of their organizing, but the workers have already managed to get hundreds of signatures on a petition in support of their demands, which that's a really good sign. So we'll keep following this as it develops, like they're just starting their drive. But specifically because of that, Lena, like what you're saying, like how vital this net node is in their logistics network. I would expect a particularly fierce anti-union campaign uh, from Amazon because, yeah, if if the workers are able to unionize one or more of these air hubs, the amount of leverage they will have over the the company is just enormous. I I think that I'm really excited for the fact that we've got this this one and inland inland empire and I mean if there really are workers out there seeing what their power levels are, uh, like I I just. It would be cool if we really saw these unions pop up in these more vital locations first, because sometimes it's usually like some of the more fringe locations or even just like popular locations, but they're not like quite as big, whether it be like in a like a New York City location. I guess I guess we did have JFK, which is our first example, which is kind of like that, Um, though that also being really important. Anyway, I guess I'm kind of getting (laughs) off the point there just uh, to see these really, really uh, important places be some of the first organizing are is really really uh i think important but yeah to move to our next story uh which we had kind of talked about you know with the the with some pilots in you know i guess in a couple different uh companies doing some informational pickets because they don't have the ability to strike due to the national railway labor act uh the well now that we have i guess updates on that yeah Um, so basically we've got yet another group of workers who have to go through the stupid draconian anti-worker 
process of the National Railway Labor Act. So on Tuesday, November 1st, 99% of Delta's 15,000 pilots voted to <laughs> authorize a strike. Uh, just about as unanimous as you can realistically get. Yeah, that Ithaca manager is at Delta now, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's one thing to get 99% with a pool of 100 employees, but 15,000 is a whole different ballgame. Yeah, so uh, like this is, again, one of these those unfortunate things where... like. Delta pilots authorized this strike two weeks ago, mm -hmm. and it's going to be a long time before we actually see a potential strike. But this is getting the ball rolling on that process. So the Airline Pilots Association, the ALPA, which represents the pilots, has not had a new contract since 2016. Uh, the workers had been negotiating a new deal in 2019, but the pandemic then came in and was used as an excuse by Delta to pause all negotiations until this year. So these workers are, are flying on a contract that is six years old and that they've been trying to get a new one for over three years. This is again, the anti-worker process inherent in removing that leverage of, of the ability to easily strike. Right. Well, and then also on the heels of using COVID as an excuse to completely pause all negotiations, even though you can definitely do negotiations with mm -hmm. video conferencing, uh, Delta is now trying to claim that this vote by the pilots is just trying to quote, give work. Well, not quote is just trying to give workers leverage at the bargaining table. Oh, Oh, no, how dare they? And yeah. that there are, quote, a few contract sections to resolve uh, trying to downplay the meaning of the strike vote, which it's like, you got to be pretty well out of your mind to downplay the meaning of a strike vote that was approved by 99,000, 99% <laughs> of 15,000 yeah. pilots, like literally 14,920 pilots or whatever <laughs> said, fuck this. Yeah. So, and, and the Delta pilots critically are not the only ones in this position mm -hmm. because also on November 1st, pilots at United voted down the latest contract proposal from United by a 94% margin, which, I mean, first getting a, a 90 plus percent margin on a strike vote, that's very, very difficult. Uh, and so hats off to the organization work that these, these pilots did to get there. But rejecting a contract by 94%, like that's one of the highest just no fuck you votes that I've seen in a while from a union. And so like the, the head of the United branch of, of the, the pilots union, Captain Mike Hamilton said in a statement, quote, it is vital United management recognizes that an industry leading contract is required to hire, train and retain the best pilots in the world, end quote. And so United workers are now launching a series of informational pickets to publicize their contract demands at air airports all over the country. And so we're again, we're just at the early stages by getting like voting down a contract, getting a strike vote. Uh, that is unfortunately not the sort of thing like with any unions that are covered under the NLRA where you can do those sorts of things and go on strike the next week. Uh, unfortunately, this is a multi-month long process right. because now, now that the, the, the pilots have initiated this, they got to go through rounds of mediation, of cooling off periods, our favorite phrase that we've unfortunately had to learn from covering the rail strike. Because uh, again, like railroad workers authorized strikes well over six months ago, and we are only just now in the next few weeks getting to the point where we are actually potentially going to see one. So uh, we're going to 
we'll keep our eye on this, but it's going to be unfortunately a very long process. But it is very good to see that these mm-hmm. pilots are pretty clearly determined and united in their desire to get an actual real contract for the first time in six years. Well, yeah, and I mean, they shouldn't be covered by the National Railway Labor Act in in any case because, like, one, it's totally unjust legislation, but two, uh, I don't know of any fucking planes that run on rails, straight up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, well, and that's the funny thing is, like, including the pilots in the National Railway Labor Act kind of puts the lie to the whole concept that, well, the railroads are different. We have to have a different law because their stuff is so unique. And then, you know, like 50 years later, uh, actually airline pilots are also railroad workers. (laughs) It's just like, no, you wrote this law just because this is a group of workers. You were really scared of what would happen if they struck. Mm -hmm. Like, and then you also became scared of what would happen if the pilot struck. So you threw them in there too. (laughs) Like that's, that's, that's really the only thing. It's just it further underlines the necessity of repealing the Railway Labor Act. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, speaking of of uh, labor management decisions that make seemingly no fucking sense whatsoever, uh, yeah. let's talk about workers, staff workers for SEIU Local 2015 in Sacramento and Los Angeles, who have been on strike since the first of this month, fighting for fair wages and health healthcare. And wait, it, you're telling me that these are union? Union workers? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So they're represented by Pacific Northwest Staff Workers Union Chapter 2015, but they work for SEIU Local 2015. And as reported by Teddy Ostra for the Real News Network, on the very first day of the strike by the 130 staff members of the giant 400,000 worker SEIU Local, one of the union managers ran through the picket line with her car. The same behavior that we see from, like, weird right-wingers and off-duty cops. Yeah. Uh, Alex Sanchez, one of the striking workers, was hit by the car, though thankfully was uninjured by this shamefully aggressive act. Uh, we have a quote that says, She hit me, and I practically rode her hood for 25 yards. I felt like I was running on ice. If I would have taken a slip, she would have ran me over. And yeah, that's just insane. This story sucks. It's the sort of story that like I don't want us to cover on the show because I don't want it to happen. Mm-hmm. Like this, this, this whole situation is terrible. Like so, like these workers are represented by an independent union. Uh, most union staff tend to just be employed at will because under the idea of they're like, well, our employer is a union. It doesn't really like we don't. So this would be like the one job we don't need a union because we're working for the union. Unfortunately, right. this is really demonstrating why. In some places, you really do. If you're a union staff, you really do need your own union because, like, these workers... depending on the local. I mean, SEIU Mm -hmm. does have some, uh, like, some good locals. Not Definitely not all of them are are very good. In fact, SEIU has a history of many locals being kind of class collaborationist. So, if anything, this union exists probably for a reason. And actually, if anything... This really supports the idea that there is a reason that they are in a union as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, these folks had originally unionized back in 2020, but over the last couple of years, SEIU leadership has refused to agree to terms on wages and health care plans, pretty uh, vital <laughs> components of a contract, for these folks who are primarily researchers, organizers, and analysts who make up the staff union. They instead just told the workers, 
just wait until your next contract to resolve those issues, which just like, what? Like, what if you're like, if you're the SEIU, like what if a nursing home told you that to the workers you're representing, you would tell them to pound sand. So why, why should these workers accept that from you? Like, yeah, I, I mean, that's I don't know. also a really, it really highlights the kind of weird contradiction there in that these, the SEIU does represent a lot of healthcare workers. And then yeah. to be like, we're not going to negotiate on healthcare. You just be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Well, and this has got to be really disheartening for the members of the union who might mm-hmm. get the idea from this kind of thing that if this these kind of terms were proposed to their union in a contract from, say, a large healthcare provider, that this SEIU local would no longer be capable of telling them to go pound sand, which has got to be a real crisis of confidence for the union membership. Yeah, I mean this the the whole situation created by this is awful. Like it makes mm-hmm. the union look bad. It, it creates ammunition for union busters to use when they're trying to make up a bunch of lies about why unions don't do anything or unions are corrupt or, or all this other, you know, stupid bullshit they come up with. And and it's and it's not just unfortunately to add to the list of things that it suck to report about this story. Like it wasn't just the aggressive ramming through the picket line. Uh, SEIU leadership has also videotaped the picket lines uh, in a, you know, an attempt to intimidate the workers called on staff members to scab against the union. And they even posted the positions of these workers online, like as if they were open to try and attract new workers to replace them. So uh, let's go over what those things mean real quick. Cause I think that that's important. I mean, videotaping a picket line is specifically to identify striking workers so that right wing people will come out and attack them, and or at the very least, to so they can you can put that information out there so they can be blacklisted. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, just calling in uh, workers to scab a strike, just blatant anti union bullshit, and then posting workers' jobs online saying, you know what. You're at will. We actually don't respect your your labor here at this union local. Like, yeah, ridiculous. Well, and and again, you know, just another factor adding to the crisis of confidence. Can you imagine if you're a member of this union and the leadership is asking you to scab for these workers? How are you supposed to believe that they're going to protect you from scabs in the future? Yeah, you know exactly. And and on that same point, like. Uh, Sanchez, the the worker who had been talking with The Real News, said, quote, we're a labor organization. We preach solidarity and worker power and empowerment and development of workers. Local 2015 management is doing the exact same thing that our members' employers are, Mm -hmm. end quote. And and, I mean, these striking workers have received a lot of like like calls for solidarity from – the IBEW from CWA, the California Federation of Labor, and even other SEIU locals, which I think highlights how out of touch the leadership of this local 2015 are. Because like you had some of the bigger ones, like like a SEIU 1199 out here, which like that used to be 1199 used to be its own union, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a couple decades ago, and is known as one of the more like militant SEIU locals. And they came out and they were like. Uh, yeah, you should treat these union staff workers better. <laughs> like, why are you treating them like this? Uh, so, yeah, I, I just think the fact that you have other SEIU locals breaking rank and, and supporting these striking workers just really serves to underline, like, how just out of pocket these the, the leadership of, of, of this local 2015 have been. It's, 
This whole thing is really, really shitty. Uh, we mm-hmm. thank. I mean, the strike is now just. To, I mean, to, to bring the story to a, 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 an end, like the, the strike is now over. It lasted twelve days uh, on this Sunday on the thirteenth. Uh, PNSWU, the union that represents the staff workers, announced they will be ending their strike for, for the moment. Uh, they specifically said in their announcement that they are going to take the three thousand dollars signing bonus that was part of of si- signing their contract and put it like all directly into PNSWU strike fund. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that no, I, 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 the way I read it is it didn't say all of it. They said they were going to pay for people's wages that were on strike for this strike, and then the rest of it was going into the oh, strike okay. fund. Okay. So so technically all of it is in the strike fund because they are using part of it for this particular strike. Right, that just ended. some of it's it's like a retroactive strike fund, yeah. sort of as well. And yeah, because they specifically, basically, in their statement, are like, "Yeah, we're ending our strike for now, but <laughs> this isn't over." And they they say in their statement, "quote There's no room for hypocrisy or double standards in the labor movement. Our commitment to upholding labor's values and building worker power, both among our staff and in solidarity with our SEIU 2015 members, is stronger than ever." End quote. And so, like. Yeah, I don't know if you're if if you're in this gigantic local, which I suppose is popular because it's possible because it has four hundred thousand members. I don't know. Now might be a time to think about like replacing the leadership because yeah. it, like this is awful. Like you should never like no union should be treating their staff this way. It's terrible. Yeah, I yeah. mean well, if people really want to start like rank and file movements, there's a couple examples. Whether it be looking up the one member one vote like arguing points from the UAW campaign. Uh, the ongoing you know, uh, UFCW fight for rank-and-file unionism, the long mm-hmm. history of the TDU, which we have a, a bunch of that in uh, our overtime episodes. Uh, you can jump in the Discord, and we'd be happy to, to help point people in, those, in the area of those resources because th- this sort of thing just should not happen. The idea mm-hmm. that like 1099 it has to be like, uh, we're standing with the people standing up for workers' rights... <laughs> It was is such a, a telling kind of situation where they're like, we're not just gonna like lay down for these people who are clearly attacking our movement, like from the inside. Yeah, well, and I'm I'm really impressed by PNSWU. Uh, I'm really impressed by PNSWU essentially leaving the ticket open on this one. They're saying like, look, this issue is like resolved for the moment. But if you want to fuck around again, you are welcome to find out. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Hopefully, the strike will be a lesson for the man, the leadership there. Mm-hmm. It's like this is a really really bad look. And perhaps we should change, like, now that they've accepted the contract and they can save some face, they can just be like, all right, well, uh, we should make sure that this doesn't happen again by actually treating our workers properly. But speaking of people who aren't treating their workers properly, mm-hmm. Harper Collins, one of the biggest publishers in the country, is now facing a big-ass strike from their workers. Uh, so last week... Uh, also on Thursday, Thursday, November 10th was a very busy uh, day in labor last week. Uh, the 250 workers at HarperCollins in New York City walked off the job over their low pay and lack of diversity in the workforce. And these folks are represented by UAW Local 2110 in New York City. And they've been negotiating for a better contract for nearly a year. Um, and, and so when there was a strike authorization vote held last month after again, uh, like nine plus months of negotiations, not going anywhere over 95% 
of these 250 workers voted in favor. And really, a lot of this is stemming from the fact that uh, publishing companies just don't pay people anything to 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 do their work. They like, don't pay. They don't pay the the artists. They don't pay the workers. They don't pay anyone except for their board of executives and their and the dividends people who own yeah. stock in the company. So, so these publishing workers who work in the you know, editorial department, sales department, publicity, marketing, and, and design, you know, all the stuff of taking a manuscript, putting it through the whole process to turn it into a book that can actually show up in bookstores, uh, they are fighting to get the minimum pay for workers at HarperCollins raised from its current level of $45,000 to $50,000, uh, which is... Like again, one of those things where it's you, you say, oh, that's like an 11% raise. That's so high. But again, these are workers in New York City. You cannot live in New York City on $45,000 a year. I don't even really know that. For, like, this is one of those where I'm like, I don't think $50,000 maybe is even high enough. Like, but that's the, that's the demand that they're focused on. And the other big thing that they're fighting for is to get agreement in written into the contract and therefore enforceable that would call on HarperCollins to increase diversity in what is an overwhelmingly white trade right now because nearly three-quarters of all the workers at HarperCollins are white with even higher uh, percentages in management. And so uh, Olga Brudastova, who is the president of UAW Local 2110, told The Guardian, quote, we want to create a workplace that is more financially sustainable for employees and accessible to people from a variety of backgrounds, end quote. And like, a big part of this is because of the fact that like the publishing industry is monopolized and has been for a while. And this is one of those things where it's like monopoly doesn't ju- really mean only one company exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are precisely four big publishers that handle essentially all of the publishing business in the United States. The HarperCollins is one, and then the other three are Simon & Schuster, Hatchet, and Pengu- Penguin Random House. Which is so, crazy because yeah. uh, Penguin Random Penguin and Random House used to be in direct competition with each other yeah. for a long time, and I believe Tor Books got eaten up in that merger, mm-hmm. or maybe slightly prior so. to it as well. Well, and I mean, even like places like Verso use Penguin Random House. I'm pretty sure as a publisher sometimes. I mean, there are there are other sorts of publishers that will coordinate with these big publishing companies. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so and like. The stories that were coming out of this, like, too, are really emblematic of, like, how insular this this industry is. Like, Laura Harshberger, who is a senior editor at HarperCollins, told The Guardian that she was only, the only reason she was even able to get into the publishing industry was by taking one of these jobs that she could not afford to pay rent and living with her parents in the city and taking a second job. So that's another thing. Like she didn't have to pay rent and the pay was still too low. Yeah. So, and most people cannot afford to do something like that, which is a, you know, a big, one of the big factors that plays into the lack of diversity because you have the racial wealth gap in this country. So pretty much only white people can afford like from rich backgrounds can afford to do this sort of thing where you work for free or work for a salary that's just unsustainable. And then if you're, you know, lucky enough to get a job like this, that's in a field that maybe is really a passion for you and you want to work in these publishing managers will just routinely threaten you 
by saying like, look, there's, there's hundreds, there's thousands of college graduates who, who are desperate, who are salivating for your job, who would do it for thirty, twenty five thousand dollars yeah. a year. And that's just like an incredibly insane thing to do to somebody who ostensibly you rely on to do high quality work for your company so that you can continue publishing books effectively. Yeah. So, uh, but so these workers, you know, again, they launched this strike on Thursday and they did receive immediately, uh, some, some nice words of support from several authors that are published by HarperCollins. Uh, I apologize. I had not actually heard of any of these authors. So, uh, if I screw up their names, uh, uh, that was not my intent, but, uh, Micah Nemeriver, uh, Charish Reed, Ali Theron and Bree Paulson all announced their support for the workers on Twitter, uh, like the day the strike launched. Ther- Theron specifically tweeted, unlivable wages and untenable conditions result in burnout and turnover. Uh, and one thing that I, uh, one other thing though I will give these workers for is I really appreciated the creativity of their picket line signs because uh, <laughs> they had stuff out there like uh, with like where the wild things are underpaid. And if you give a mouse a fair contract, <laughs> there's a lot, a lot of really high quality creative picket signs out there. I just wanted to throw a, a, a shout out to the workers there. And, and I also appreciate like the, they even mentioned like a uh, Harshberger, the, the worker that we mentioned before had told the guardian that they were nervous about the strike, but said, quote, what we're doing is challenging and very scary. But when we all come together, we end up feeling better about it. End quote. And I mean, yeah. that's, yeah, that's the thing. It's like you draw your strength from each other. So, you know, solidarity with these folks and don't buy anything from uh, Harper Collins while they're on strike. Absolutely. That's right. Yep. And, uh, in our next story, we're going to be talking about academic workers in California who are, uh, about to launch the largest strike in, uh, in the U S in like three years, uh, there are 50,000 w- academic workers across the, uni- uh, the University of California system who uh, uh, who actually walked off. I guess I'm, I'm uh, <laughs> getting ahead of myself. They walked off the, the, uh, the job this morning, November 14th. So we're recording on the 14th, uh, demanding a uh, fair wage. These workers who include gra- grad student workers, uh, postdoctoral workers, academic researchers, Uh, And undergraduate student employees who are members of the UAW are fighting for basically a unified series of demands. The workers are asking for raises to deal with the soaring cost of living, protections against workplace harassment and discrimination, equal treatment for international workers, and the university to take measures to address its role in climate change. Uh, The workers have been bargaining for months, but the university administration has refused to negotiate in good faith, as we see all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, The UAW has been forced to file over 25 unfair labor practices against the university over the last several months of negotiations. It's, yeah, I think it's really critical that they included addressing the university's role in climate change in there, uh, because like we talk a lot on this show about how COVID was such a big impetus for labor organizing, and as we move, you know, through the next five, ten years, we're definitely going to be experiencing much more tangible effects of climate change year upon year, compounding, mm-hmm. and so I think we're going to see a lot more workers become galvanized by that as well. Not to say that I'm glad climate change is happening just to say that I'm glad, you know, workers are the kind of people who, when they see it, want to do something about it. Yeah. I I actually think, uh, I I mean, coming along with this being the biggest strike in the country right now over the last three years, um, and is the biggest strike of academic workers in U S history. Um, 
you, we've also come with a very comprehensive uh, platform of demands that these mm-hmm. workers, they actually have a whole website for it. Uh, fairucnow.org that lays out, they, they have all this like really well put together research on like, this is what we need. And we know the university can pay for it. It's, it's incredibly well put together. It's so like, wild um, that professional academics are really good at research. <laughs> Just, <laughs> who knew? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, my doe, who is a teaching assistant at UC Riverside, said in a statement, quote, too many people are being forced out of UC because they aren't paid enough to afford the rising cost of housing on or off campus. I've had to take on credit card debt while working at UC just to cover my necessities because over 60% of my salary is spent on rent alone. When workers like me are being paid $27,000 a year, we cannot just wait around for the university to change course and stop their unlawful conduct. We have no choice but to move towards a strike end quote. And like this, there are so many parallels here between the UC workers and the Columbia workers mm-hmm. who we talked about, you know, uh, late last year, early this year, it's like this is the same thing or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With just like their workers are being paid basically nothing. They have almost no benefits uh, and they're living in some of the most expensive cities in the country. Meanwhile, the whole University of California system is raking in enormous profits on their labor. And the conditions that these workers face are objectively terrible. Like that 91% of grad workers are rent burdened and rent burden means you're spending over 30% of your income on rent. Oh shit. And that's so me. Are, so are 61% of postdoc workers and, Nearly half, 40% of grad workers spend more than half of their income on rent. That's disgusting. Nobody should have to do that. Yeah, like that is like, that basically means you can afford to uh, work and sleep and nothing else. Yeah, you can't eat Um, out. You can't buy new clothes. You can't, you can't afford a car. You can't, you can barely afford public transportation depending on your city. Like that's incredibly rough. Well, and, and the low wages, she points out, like $27,000 a year. I don't, you can't live anywhere on $27,000 no. a year. Like, you can't live in, like, the cheapest parts of this country on that. And these folks are in California, often, again, very expensive places like Berkeley and L.A. and, and you know, all sorts of these places. And so to remedy this, the union is demanding raises so that the minimum salary for grad workers would be $54,000 a year. Postdocs would be $70,000 a year. All academic researchers would get a 14% raise and that all of these workers would get an annual COLA to deal with inflation. So uh, they're also demanding free public transit passes for workers, reimbursement for childcare for parents, health care f- for dependents. Cause that's another thing that was wild to me. Like the workers that do get health care, it doesn't cover any of their dependents, which, okay, cool. Great. Wonderful, useless health care for parents. Um, yeah. and they're also demanding, uh, expanded parental leave. So they're also, this was one that I really love. Cause I don't know that I'd seen this, although it may be in other contracts, but I really appreciated this from, from the, these workers. They're also fighting specifically for justice for disabled workers by demanding full online access to lab meetings, research seminars, and other educational settings so that the university would actually be welcoming to workers with disabilities. And that's something that like, I really, I haven't seen it in many other, you know, strike demands, but it's the sort of thing that I, 
think really should be a lot more common. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that the university is going to push back really hard against that because that's Mm going to very easily digitize a lot of the resources that could then be democratized to be pushed out in via other avenues like you know online libraries and such which could then you know hurt the university's income because people are allowed to educate themselves independently and you know whatever bullshit they want to come up with to defend their fucking like like I don't know how I would describe it. What is it? Uh, you know, exclusive system for people who can afford to be in these expensive locations. Yeah, uh, it's their their goal of keeping the university a walled garden. Right. Exactly. Well, and and this kind of action by the workers really illustrates something that's very true both in labor studies and in disability studies, which is when you do something that increases opportunities and advantages for the people in society who are offered the least of them. It helps everyone. Absolutely. 100%. So, uh, yeah, this strike is the biggest in the country, the biggest strike in the history of academic workers in the U.S., and came with, yet again, another overwhelming vote, 98% of the uh, 50,000 workers voting in favor of the strike. Mm -hmm. And, uh, again, this is, like, these demands that the workers are making may seem like a lot, uh, they're not, but but especially when you find out that these workers are making over six billion dollars a year for the University of California system. So any argument of like, well, we can't possibly afford that program, not true, incorrect. <laughs> like these workers are the only reason the UC system can function. And so they absolutely can afford to pay these workers. Uh, There should be a law that says if a company or an organization wants to hide behind not having the money to pay their workers, they should be legally required to post the books online for anybody to look at. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, so this strike is started as of today, Monday. And uh, along with the strike starting, the Teamsters have announced that no no member is required to cross the picket lines to make deliveries, which will additionally amplify the impact. Because not only does that make a, a difference in, you know, just like a solidarity, but like when this strike is over, there's going to be additional impacts because all of those deliveries will have to be made later and it's going to cause backups. And that is because the university will not respect the workers. Yeah. Administrators and managers are going to have an awfully difficult time getting supplies when all of the UPS drivers are like, I'm not going in there. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So there, there is a, uh, a strike fund out there for the UAW workers. I will put that in the show notes. But also, you know, if, if you're a listener and you're in California, there's probably a campus near you. So uh, if you have an opportunity and there's a picket line near you and you can go show your support, even just with your presence, like, like even if you don't bring anything, if all you do is show up and tell them that you support them, that can go a really long way. So we definitely encourage any of our listeners, if you're in California and you have the time and there is a picket line near you, Definitely show up and show your support. Yeah. Speaking of other places that we are not in, uh, we're going to be t- <laughs> yes. <laughs> that we're going to talk about a, a continuation of the strikes that we've been seeing over in the United Kingdom, where you know we have been taught we talked to a worker about the uh, you know the post strike that was happening and a lot of the different rolling strikes that have been happening there. Uh, and this one where, I mean, I guess the strikes are expanding there because 
uh, 300,000 nurses are uh, planning to launch their first nationwide strike in history. Yeah. Um, so, you know, obviously we've been covering the big strike wave that's sweeping the UK. And it just, every time like we bring it up, I'm just like, oh, the strike wave has multiplied yet again. Uh, so these workers, these nurses who are going to be striking, uh, yeah, again, it's the, the first nationwide strike vote in the history of the Royal College of Nursing. And it comes as the Tory government is planning to only give NHS workers an average raise of 4.75%, while UK inflation is already over 10%. So again, this is a 5% wage cut. And that's on top of the fact that these workers, again, because there's been successive Tory governments and a lot of like weak opposition from labor during this period, that you've just had basically a decade of Tory rule that has had no increases. And really, you've had a lot of NHS workers see a, an actual drop in their wages in real terms by as much as 20%. And this, so this offer of a 4.75% raise when you have 10% inflation is only adding to that. It's only making it clear that these NHS workers' salaries continue to go down and down, even though they are workers literally keeping UK citizens alive. Yeah, well, and like their demands are not new. They've been asking the government to give them raises for years, constantly pointing to the fact that so many nurses are in poverty due to the drop in wages and the fact that some of them have actually had to resort to using food banks just to be able to eat, despite, as you said, being the backbone of the healthcare system in the UK. Mm -hmm. And in response, the Tory Education Secretary, Gillian Keegan, said that the only reason nurses use food banks is because either, quote, their, re their relationship or their boiler will have broken down, which is not just incredibly classist and an insane thing to say. That's also deeply misogynist. Yeah. Like, here's the thing, like, you're, like, as a, I think there are sometimes people who are introduced to be, it's like, oh, like, women can't be misogynist. Wrong. <laughs> like, then this is a really good example of mm -hmm. that. And, and like, uh, like, misogyny, like, like, patriarchy, like, like, so many other, like, aspects of, of capitalist society are ingrained into everyone. Uh, and, and so, like, I, this is a really good example of that. And I appreciated the strong response from the workers, so like Rachel Harrison, natural se National Secretary of the GMB Union, responded saying, quote, does Ms. Keegan think that we have 135,000 vacancies in the NHS because of breakups? <laughs> Which, like, that, see, this is, that's the good stuff because it just shows how absurd these anti-worker talking points are. And so, you know, of course, we have all the fear-mongering from, from the Tories and the corporate press about how nurses striking will hurt patients, how it's, you know, abandoning the responsibility to the public, all this stupid nonsense, and even some ludicrous claims that giving nurses races would fuel inflation. This is actually, oh, yeah. I think, I've seen that a bunch of times in the UK. They love wage price spiral bullshit. They they think <laughs> that, that wages going up is the sole cause of inflation and has nothing to do with the dictators of, you know, the different companies and capital saying, hey, we would like giant profit margins. Yeah, but it, yeah. Well, of course it's perfectly fine when Jacob Rees-Mogg makes another million and a half pounds speculating <laughs> on, you know, London real estate or whatever. That doesn't yeah. affect inflation at all. But, like, nurses getting money, that's the real crime. Yeah, bullshit. Bullshit. Yeah. 
So uh, Royal College of Nursing General Secretary Pat Collins said in a, in a statement, quote, Anger has become action. Our members are saying enough is enough. The voice of nursing in the UK is strong, and I will make sure it is heard. Our members will no longer tolerate a financial knife edge at home and a raw deal at work. Ministers must look in the mirror and ask how long they will put nursing staff through this, end quote. And so uh, learned yet another piece of, of, of difference in the legislation for labor in the UK on this, because thanks to anti-worker legislation passed by the Tories, they were the nurses were not able to take a single nationwide strike vote. They had to take individual strike votes at every single location and had to get a majority clearance at each individual one of them. And so if any location did not clear that 50% threshold, that place would not be able to go on strike. Uh, however, uh, that did not actually turn out to be an impediment because so many of the nurses are so very angry at the incredibly awful conditions they're facing. So when these strikes do kick off, the vast majority of nurses in hospitals and other healthcare facilities across the UK will be going on strike. Every single health service employer in Scotland, in Northern Ireland, all but one in Wales, and the majority of hospitals in England itself all cleared the, the strike vote threshold. Yeah, and the first dates of the strike haven't been set yet, but are expected to occur over two days in mid-December, continuing and continue enrolling one- and two-day strikes until May, until the Tories agree to provide the workers with real raises. Not only will they get, uh, will or not only will they be joining the rail workers uh, in the RMT or the posties in CWU. And the dock workers in the critical ports, but even more unions have recently joined the strike wave as well. On Tuesday, November 8th, 70,000 workers from from UK's biggest academic union, the uh, UCU, announced that they would be striking for real pay raises as well, starting on November 24th, 25th, and 30th. And then on Friday, November 10th, uh, 100,000 public service workers across the country voted 86% in favor of joining the picket lines as well, fighting for a 10% raise, job security, and better pensions. So the class struggle is Im- is becoming immense in the mm-hmm. UK. This brings the number of workers striking in unions in the UK to nearly just 750,000 workers, three quarters of a million workers. Uh, yeah. It's, huge amount of people in the union movement um, that has really not seen any parallels since the miners strike in the 80s. Yeah. And it's really interesting that like a lot of the uh, a lot of the industries that are striking over there are the very same ones that are either striking or going through big labor disputes over here, academic workers, nurses, you know, uh, freight rail operators, etc. Because it's like the conditions have been engineered to be the same in both countries, you know? So we're experiencing economic crises in the same industries where, you know, basically the same types of industry leaders have tried to intensify labor and cut real wages for their employees for decades at a time now. Yeah. So really great to see, you know, the nurses taking this step, the the public workers, the academic workers, like this is all like really inspiring, like, because all these workers being on strike at the same time is just continuing to build those connections between unions. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of thing, you know, uh, nobody in the UK ruling class wants to see because uh, <laughs> that starts to build towards a unified working class movement. Um, 
that uh, we will certainly be watching as it grows because uh, as the Tories continue to refuse to address this crisis, this is only affecting more and more workers. Uh, so I would just say I think we can buckle up for a <laughs> a rather bumpy winter of class struggle in the UK. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see the last time there was like a real crisis of, uh, you know, labor unrest in the UK. A couple of real nice German fellas came over and wrote some real interesting <laughs> books about it. <laughs> That's true. So, of course... You know, we got to end our show, uh, or at least the news portion of it, with a quick check-in on Starbucks. Uh, we actually pretty, pretty small, a slow news week for for the Starbucks Workers United movement this week. Uh, the strike at the New York City Roastery continued into its third week. Uh, as the company continued to refuse to commit to providing a safe and sanitary work environment. Workers also held a one-day strike at the 5th and Pike store in Seattle to demand the company stop intentionally understaffing to try and drive out union uh, supporters by making work unbearable. And then there were uh, there was also one more <laughs> uh, additional store that voted to unionize this week. Workers in Arlington, Virginia, voted 8-2 to two to become the 260th unionized Starbucks in the U.S., and they became the second union store in the D.C. area. And I just wanted to highlight, there was a, a, a great video that I saw that was tweeted out about this where one worker at the store, Sam Ducor, had been working to organize that Starbucks for the last eight years and even directly confronted Howard Schultz about it at a company meeting <laughs> com- to complain about the union busting being done. And now this store officially has its union, and so do about 7,000 other workers at unionized Starbucks across the country. Hell yeah. Their movement has been so inspiring, really. Mm-hmm. And, and to see, and I mean, like, the, the struggle has been going on for a long time. I mean, especially this really highlights, I mean, Someone who's been doing this fight for eight years is finally seeing, you know, a real path to victory. And I think that that's really, really inspiring. I mean, can you imagine uh, how you would feel if you had been fighting for this for six years by the time, six and a half years, by the time the first... uh, the first rumblings about unionized Starbucks really started to kick off in the news. And then to see the wave take over during this year and be like, uh, wow, I think this might actually happen for us. That's going to feel great. I mean, that's going to feel incredible. Yeah, Yeah. certainly, certainly, certainly. Well, uh, speaking of feeling incredible, (laughs) how about we talk about some memes? That's right. (laughs) The first one we have in here is, is one that's been going around. I've even seen like some video game loading screen edits of this, uh, take off pretty quickly, but it's just a photo of two Starbucks baristas and one has his head down in his hands, which are on his knees as he's sitting down behind the line. The other barista's got his hand on his shoulder and it says at the top, a customer told me they were never coming back. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. When when customers think that they're so fucking important, so goddamn entitled to, to whatever bullshit that they're asking, that they're like, well, I'm never coming back, and I'm going to tell your manager. It's like, you're just trying to ruin my day because you're a prick. Yeah. <laughs> and also, like, I don't know, uh, have you ever met a Starbucks customer? They are coming back. Don't let them fucking lie to you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's just always so funny when when like somebody's like, "Well, I'm going to take my business elsewhere." It's just like, "Oh no. Don't do that." Where to oh, the other no. Starbucks one neighborhood <laughs> over? I don't care. <laughs> it- 
Yeah, well, it's also like, I just work here. Why would I care? Yeah, exactly. You know this work for me. It's very busy in here. One less person is a favor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this next one is a very classic DeShare Zone uh, style of meme. You've just got skulls, one that's, that's, a, that's a, like, u.s flag skull one that's wearing a u.s flag bandana uh and it's just this is the usa we pick our presidents from a pre-approved list of two people (laughs) cops kill us no punishment we love having covid we love to get shot in our schools (laughs) vegetables suck (laughs) we pick your president too don't like it me either bitch (laughs) It's true. I don't like it. Dishare <laughs> uh, Zone. Oh, these man. these are pretty good. I. It's. I don't know. Always a staple to be putting in to be put in here. Yeah, we uh, pick your I, president too. Really killed me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Our next one is a commentary on the on the Twitter debacle, which is the only time we're really going to be weighing in on this. I think. Uh, <laughs> Unless, unless something actually really important happens. But um, this is uh, the Steve Buscemi wearing the, uh, the you know, band artist shirt or band music, like mm-hmm. ACDC style shirt that says, hello, fellow kids. But it's just a, like infinitely re- like copied Steve Buscemi with the skateboard, uh, all with blue checks on their foreheads. And uh, it says, how do you do, fellow public figures? And... Uh, <laughs> Oh, it's. It, I guess there's the top <laughs> caption that says anyone with eight dollars. Yeah, it's so funny that people have just been paying for Elon's stupid ass fucking service that doesn't work, and then like posting things that eventually affect stock prices of major companies. I'm still that waiting for favorite. someone to make an IMF account and just tweet all loans forgiven. <laughs> yeah. I think that would really do damage. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, there was Lockheed Martin. There was Har- uh, no. What was the 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 um, there was an insulin company. company. Company, uh, yeah, Eli Lilly. Eli Lilly. Yeah, that yeah. was that was the one that made made most of the news. It, yeah, it's also been funny because I've seen like a lot of the weirdos who cape for Eline be like, "Oh, they're all just playing into his hands. You gave him the money, and he gets to spend your account." It's like, "Oh, oh, wow! Oh, I gave no. him eight dollars." <laughs> and also, yeah. I saw the thing is like you can literally just dispute it at your bank. These th- you like what you do is you put you pay the eight dollars, you go in and you do your shit post that tanks an imperialist stock price. <laughs> you get banned, and then you call your bank and say, "I don't want that charge on my card." <laughs> well, and now nobody's ever going to advertise on Twitter because you can just because this like impersonation thing is just driven people away yeah. which is great because fuck twitter well, there was and also, like, that was elon like, has been doing damage control personally replying to large corporations and trying yeah. to assure them that it's going to be okay which is fucking hilarious yeah and i remember one is like the twitter blue is twitter blue account was like we're doing this thing that's very important and then there's like a little thing below it which is uh, like twitter blue official with yeah. a blue check mark and it says no we're not yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Uh, I will say uh, the collapse of Twitter has certainly made it a like more fun place than it's been in years. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that there's that's going for it at least. Uh, then our next one is just uh, you know I guess there's this kid with a razor scooter. It's got this little bang 
uh, kind of image behind. And uh, the caption on this one is, capitalism is but a razor scooter, and I am but an ankle. <sighs> Which is basically just saying that capitalism is always going to hit you in the place that hurts. I haven't been hit in the ankle by a razor scooter in over a decade. And I, I saw a kid riding one fairly recently, like earlier this year. And I remember thinking to myself... Is that a fucking razor scooter? I didn't know you could still get those. <laughs> What's next? I'm going to see a bop it. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, uh, oh, they're going to bring the, back what, hoverboards. Was it, yeah. Like Hasbro is getting getting in trouble for overprinting uh, magic cards now. I'm sure they're, you know, trying to tank a bunch of other value valuable things and I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So the last one in here, uh, threw in here for, for our listeners who have ever worked retail uh, and have been subjected to the horrors of Christmas season Muzak. Um, <laughs> so this one somebody made, it's a, it's a three-panel meme. Uh, two panels are from The Lord of the Rings, and one panel is not. <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's got Gandalf at the top, and he's, he's, he's flipping through a big book, and it's got that, the line... Drums, drums in the deep. A shadow moves in the dark. We cannot get out. And then it's, and then it just says, she is coming. <laughs> and then it's a picture of Mariah Carey from the All I Want for Christmas is You video. <laughs> <laughs> and then in the bat- bottom panel is just like Gandalf, like running away in terror. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've worked retail. I don't even mind Mariah Carey as much as the endless Michael Bublé Christmas songs that oh, I have to fucking yeah. listen to. Oh Those my god! And what a soulless fucking weirdo he is too. Like, there's just something uncanny about his Christmas music. <laughs> I fucking hate yeah. it. Well, every year I do a Christmas remix, and I have not picked out my song for this year. So, if you want to hear me fuck up a Christmas song, absolutely <laughs> bamboozle that shit. Uh, come into the Discord and let me know what song I should totally fuck up because I <laughs> I absolutely love doing that every year on December twenty fifth, and I have for what six years now, seven years, something like it's, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, nice. But but anyway, with that, we're going to end the episode. If you'd like to support our work, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash workstoppage. We're entirely listener supported, so it's the only way that we actually pay for any of this immense amount of work that we do here. And uh, we really appreciate you all for, for doing that support. If you become a patron, you get access to all of our overtime episodes, all of our interviews, all of everything, uh, as well as if you message us, you can get stickers. So... Yeah, get stickers, I guess. Uh, and uh, when you get those stickers, you can use them as your five star review to put on, you know, I don't know, the door t- that goes into your work. Uh, and follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain. Follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. Listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody.